Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And today I'm very pleased to have a topic we have not talked about before, and that's all about intestinal transplants. And our guest today, I'm very pleased to have on the show, and that's Dr. Anil Vaidya, who is a surgeon and the director of Cleveland Clinic's Intestinal Transplant Program here in Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute. Anil, welcome so much to Butts and Guts. Thank you very much indeed, Scott, for having me on. So as longtime listeners know of this show, we always like to start out with a little bit about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where'd you train, and how did it get to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Well, it's been, it's been a journey, I must say. Um, I trained at uh, the University of Miami, did my transplant training there with Andy Zarkis. Uh, that's where I got interested in, in intestinal transplants. My first um, exposure to intestinal transplants was in the late 90s with Andy. Um, after that, I, I moved um, to Oxford, Oxford University Hospitals. And at Oxford University Hospitals, I set up the intestinal transplant service which was already there. I mean, in, in the UK, the, these high-end services are restricted to, you know, very small numbers, numbers, you know, number centers. And um, it just needed someone to go there and kind of rejuvenate the whole thing. And so Peter Friend and myself, we took that on and put Oxford back on the map in terms of uh, internal transplantation in Europe. Around 2015-16, I moved to India to take care of my father who was ill, and uh, so set up another intestinal transplant program in India. You know, very difficult thing to do because of um, you know the amount of infections and what have you. And oh, yeah, there's a successful intestinal transplant program there in South India right now. After which, I moved to the Cleveland Clinic. You know, Cleveland Clinic was. Um, always a coveted uh, position to be in. And, uh, you know, when the offer came around, I grabbed onto it. Well, we are absolutely super excited to have you here. And it's been fascinating to watch as you continue to grow and develop this program here in Cleveland. And so let's start at a 10,000 foot view level for our listeners out there. And as you know, a lot of our listeners are patients out there or family members. And what is an intestinal transplant? What what, what does that mean? And what, what type of intestine are you actually transplanting? So that's a very interesting question. I, I do get that you know, a lot of times from my patients. And obviously, your know, patients have also done a lot of background uh, reading and what have you, and access Google and what have you. Interestingly, when you say intestinal transplant, it could mean you're transplanting everything from the stomach onwards down to the colon. So you can transplant the stomach, the pancreatic duodenal complex, you know, the small intestine, as well as the large intestine for people that have lost the ability permanently of using their intestine for uh, nutritional purposes. Can you ever or have you ever transplanted as a colorectal surgeon? Have you ever transplanted the hindgut, the colon, so, rectum? So in, again, very interesting question. Um, there are only two groups that I've done an animal model, and you know I've been I've been working with a Brazilian group. Um, so there's a Brazilian group and a, and a, a Japanese group, and we have done um, orthotopic as well as heterotopic um, experiments on seeing whether there is residual sphincteric function on the transplanted rectum. And to our surprise, 
you know, the, in the earlier days, we were joining the pudendal nerve to, to see whether there's any function to the rectum. But when you did a heterotopic model on top of the rat's belly, the, the sphincteric uh, function was still there. So it has opened the gates to perhaps, you know, looking at that you know, carefully in the future. So the next obvious question to me is, why would somebody need an intestinal transplant? What type of conditions arrive that somebody is saying, hey, we're going to refer them to you, to the Cleveland Clinic, to be able to, to do whatever it is to get their gut function back? The indications for intestinal transplants are divided into whether it's a pediatric patient or it's an adult patient. So with a pediatric group of patients, the most common uh, indication is necrotizing enterocolitis. That is, you know, at birth, as you know, they have um, you know intense necrosis of their colons, and they have the whole colons out, and they have repeated resections after that, leading to what's called a short gut. Their guts are not enough for them to feed, so they need they need exogenous uh, you know, sources of uh, nutrition. So that is perhaps one of the biggest causes of pediatric age patients coming towards transplantation. There are other congenital malformations, anomalies that lead to loss of gut, and that's in the pediatric patients. In the adult patients, it's a bit of a different cohort of people. The majority of the reasons are for ischemic gut, where the blood supply to the intestine has been blocked off by a clot an embolus that originates from the heart or from the lower limbs and has a paradoxical way of getting into the blood supply of the intestine. So ischemic gut is perhaps the number one reason for adults having to come to an intestinal transplant service. What's got to be understood is that it's not like liver transplant and liver failure. You see, if someone's got acute liver failure, it needs to be transplanted very quickly. Whereas when you have acute a clot in your intestine, you lost your intestine, the patients need to be stabilized first before we can think about an intestinal transplant. So there is a window, about three to four months. You know, it's an extensive surgery. Take out all the gut that's not got blood supply, take it out, stabilize the patient, get the patient onto what's called as TPN, exogenous nutrition, and wait for all the inflammation to settle down before you evaluate these people for a bowel transplant. So that's the number one thing, that that's ischemic gut. But there are other indications, since we've gotten better at what we do, and our outcomes have gotten better, the indications have increased. And you know the other major indication that we look at right now is a fallout from Crohn's disease. You know, with Crohn's disease, there could be multiple resections done to take out structured components or inflamed uh, components leading up to short gut. In fact, at Oxford, we wrote a paper and it's published in JAMA Surgery about a scoring system on which physicians who are looking at patients in long term with Crohn's should be starting to think about transplant as an option, which we would develop that scoring system and give us a certain amount of points for every you know, landmark or metric that a patient comes across. So you know, ischemic gut, inflammatory bowel disease, and now slowly we're getting into the tumors in the abdominal cavity, like your desmoids, very slow-growing tumors that encase the blood supply to the intestine and sometimes cuts off that blood supply to the intestine. 
The last but not the least indication is something that we pioneered again in Oxford is, is for lo, slow-growing, low-grade pseudomyxomas that are appendicular in origin, but not as, a, as is for patients who failed conventional therapy with pseudomyxoma. And the conventional therapy is, you know, resecting all the, all the jelly-like material, taking the colon out, and have something called HIPEC therapy. Um, that's the first conventional therapy they should go through. If they fail that, then you know, we have a way of you know, giving them an option for, you know, uh, to get rehabilitated. And I encourage all of our listeners out there to look back in our back episodes. And uh, there was an episode with Dr. Michael Valente talking about cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC. So how common are these intestinal transplants? Is this something that, I mean, inflammatory bowel disease is surely a pretty common type thing in ischemia. So how common is the need for intestinal transplant or even an evaluation for intestinal transplant? So the way to address that is you should look at intestinal failure and what is the what is the prevalence of intestinal failure and intestinal failure is divided into three parts it's type one type two and type three now type one happens if you your patients in in the hospital comes for an extended procedure and the abdomen has got a bit of ileus and needs some tpn you know to you know, go through that period when your bowel is in returning function and just a standby for that is for less than 30 days that is type one now some patients might migrate into what's called as type two intestinal failure where they need that exogenous tpn for perhaps about a year but after the year they stabilize and as surgeons we can take care of what's happening in their belly like fistulas and what have you and you know, take care of that surgical problem and they come off TPM. Some of the people from type 2 may slide into type 3. Now, type 3 is irreversible intestinal failure. There's nothing that you can do surgically to get the intestines longer to be able to absorb nutrients. And these people will be permanently on, on TPM. Most of them do well on TPM. It is about 10 to 12% of this population in type 3 intestinal failure that might not do well in on TPM, i.e. they might have Lyme infections repeatedly, they might have fungal infections, they might have liver failure from the TPN. These are the patients that we're looking for. So in terms of numbers, overall number, the incidence is 1919 per million as type 1 intestinal failure, then we're looking at half of that. So we're looking at about eight or nine per million at type two. And again, 50% of that into type three. So we're looking about three or four per million in type three. And 10 to 12% of that may qualify for intestinal transplant. So you know, in a country like the United States, with 350 million people, we're talking about you know, we're talking about in the hundreds, not in the thousands. That's a very interesting thing. So on our podcast, we like to do a segment that's called Truth or Myth. So truth or myth to you, intestinal transplants are more common in adults than children. Truth or myth? Truth. 
Can you go into a little bit more depth on that? So, it just, so is it because of the stage they're at in life or just the disease process that affect them tend to be a little bit more? So the disease, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the disease process is more of a varied disease process. So that that uh, cohort of people are more, so there could be more uh, ischemic guts, more uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, more tumors. Whereas in the pediatric segment, you're looking at a very narrow window of people, oh, sorry, of kids that have, you know, necrotizing enterocolitis, the, the incidence is very low. You know, kids that are born with um, with uh, congenital abnormalities like gastroschisis that could go wrong. Um, so that denominator is quite small. So you know, but if you compare the number of kids that are in that in that uh, you know have that problem and the, the amount of transplant done for that, there's again a huge difference between the numbers. So the transplants are very small in terms of the the denominator there. You touched base on this a little bit, but truth or myth, when intestines don't function properly, they can be repaired, repaired and transplants are not needed. I would say that is false. I mean, that's, that's, that's a myth. Um, the patients that come to us, as I said, are part of type three, irreversible intestinal failure. So, you know, all bridges have got to be burnt before they come to us. It is not something that I would, I would try to do with a person with type 2 intestinal failure where there is something that I can repair. That is the, going to be the first port of call. Let us repair something that we know how to repair. And after repairing, there's got to be an, an algorithm saying, after I have repaired what you, your problems are, you are going to come off exogenous feeding um, you know, um, modalities or TPM. Now, in type twos, you know, as I said, 50% will go on to type three. Is there a way of identification of who are those people who may not benefit from trying to repair their guts? And you know, perhaps you, know, you, you jump the queue and say, well, actually, you know, even if I repair your gut, there is a, there's a very good chance you're not going to come off TPN. And these are the people that we need to be able to talk to and counsel, and and you know they would benefit from you know having a having a, a chat with a transplant surgeon, which is exactly why we we came up with a scoring system for Crohn's disease, and you know it gives you gives the gives the surgeon taking care of uh, that patient or the physician a little heads up. And a little metric to see, is this going to work? Or should I be calling the transplant surgeon sooner rather than later? So surgery in general can be a little bit scary. And intestinal transplant surgery sometimes can even raise the eyebrows even further. So let's talk a little bit about the patient journey. So first, how does a patient get involved or in touch with Cleveland Clinic's intestinal transplant program? And, you know, when they are in touch, what can a patient or their family expect as they navigate that preoperative and postoperative journey? So that's a very good question. And in, in, in terms of how, what is the referral you know, practice or how can a patient get in touch with um, with the with the with the department of intestinal transplant, well, clearly you know the Cleveland Clinic is is well represented on on the internet, and you know there's a website that they can easily click on and get an appointment scheduled. Um, however, it is quite 
you know, it's quite um, a mammoth task to think that, oh my God, I need an intestinal transplant. I mean, the, you know, the insight, the level of insight that you you have to have to say, I'm going to call that website, you know, on my own. And you say, I'm, I want an sound is, is practically not going to happen. So essentially it's going to be a, a referral practice from gastroenterologists, fellow colleagues as surgeons, with having the knowledge that perhaps there is something more that we can offer this patient um, in terms of uh, you know rehabilitation, in terms of transplant, and therefore that would be the majority of the the um, uh, referral practice. And for patients, you know, who are you know in you know, on TPN, they have irreversible um, intestinal failure and are um, facing problems with the TPN, with the lines, with the with liver function. They themselves could perhaps encourage their physician, their primary physicians to make that referral. And, but again, you know, that needs, you know, as we all do, we believe in our doctors and we say, okay, if the doctor has not yet said that, I perhaps don't need it. And you know, there is, there's always that, you know, uh, I'm on TPN and I'm good until a point comes when I'm on TPN, I was good, but now I'm frequently going in and out of the hospital for line infections or I've become a bit yellow. Those are the alarming signs which usually trigger a referral to the transplant service. And once they've, they've gotten that to the transplant service, what we, you know, we, what we do is we, we have a, a, a first meeting that's just to get, you know, get to know each other. It's nothing, no big words used, just to get used to each other, you get comfortable with each other. We would be looking at what is the you know, kind of support that the patient has, who comes to that meeting, you know, what are the questions being asked, you know, what is the level of indulgence of the people with the patient? So that would be our first, you know, our first uh, thought process. Um, then we'd arrange a second meeting. We'll give them a lot of uh, you know, material to read, uh, give them links that they can go in and have their own, you know, their own um, look and see what they're getting into. And then the second meeting, this is when we tell them exactly what they, you know, the, the procedure means, what is the recovery period, and what have you. And you know, intestinal transplant has come a long way in terms of, you know, what that recovery period should look like. You know, what is how easy can we make it for patients? to actually take care of themselves and have ownership of their health. And you know, try to you know, let them know that they we're always there you know, to help them. But essentially, they're having a transplant to get better, to get back to life, to get back to you know, doing what they were doing before. And that is what we try to, you know, to push across, uh, that their dependence on the healthcare system has to kind of calm down. And if they have a transplant, they have to get on with life. So how early in the game, you as a, uh, the director of this program, would you like to be notified about these patients? I'm, I'm now a, a provider out there listening and think, God, I got, a, I got a patient, but I don't think they're quite there yet. Do you want to be contacted earlier rather than later? Or what, what, what stage or when they're in the hospital and they've just had a massive resection and they're on life support? Where, where in that process and that unfortunate potential consequences do you want to be notified? So I would, you know, be, I would be, Delighted to be involved earlier 
because, you know, the later you put this off, you know, patients come in at later stages, you know, they've lost line access, you know, they've had you know, problems with their liver, their enzymes are going up. It, my back's against the wall at that point. You know, I have to you know, do things, you know, in, in rapid sequence, trying to get them on the list and what have you. And you know, the understanding of you know, that this transplanter is, is a journey and that doesn't really you know, percolate through. It doesn't give them time to think. So I'd rather be involved earlier. You know, know that they are there. Do not reach out. Reach out only when the primary physician is going to is, is made a referral. But have a little database, you know, where my coordinators can be keeping a watch on them, and we can discuss them on you know on a monthly meeting with a primary physician to see how they're doing, what have you. So that would be an ideal situation. That usually doesn't happen, though. I mean, especially with the with with ischemic gut, it's a catastrophic event for the patient, and they are in the ICU with you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of iron strokes, and you know, there's a 50-50 chance of making it through. And of course, at that point, I would be delighted again to be involved, and but I'd still be one step behind because I need to see patients recovering, you're showing signs of recovery. And as I said, it's not something that I jump in and either transplant them right away, which used to happen in the old days, but it, you know, no longer for trauma in the old days. You know, they would be put on the waiting list right away after, after a trauma and you know, have an internal transplant. I mean, we, we, we found out that the, the level of inflammation in the body is so high that you know, you'd have a, a worse immunological reaction to that transplant. So when patients make it through a successful transplant, two questions. One, can they resume normal function as well as normal eating habits after that? And do, second, do they have to be on lifelong medication for that transplant? So answer the first question, yes, that is exactly why they're having the transplant. And um, that is the goal to be off TPN and be, you know, um, to have your intestine, transplant intestine, doing all your nutrition and electrolyte balance work for you. So that is the goal. And that is where we, we consider it to be a success. Lifelong immunosuppression is, is it's quid pro quo. It comes with the, with the, um, you know, the whole transplant. What's interesting is that all the years we've understood this lifelong immunosuppression or drugs thing has actually drastically come down. You know, in the early days, we were thinking intestines, my God, such a big graft. We're going to need a lot more immunosuppression. And we've learned our lesson that, you know, over the last 20 years, we've come now down to a single drug. In my practice, I am totally against steroids. I do not use steroids in the long run. It's only one drug, and that to that drug is given once a day. So, you know, that is the, that is the you know, quid pro quo for getting back to, you know, your autonomy of eating. So what's on the horizon as far as additional research or innovations in the intestinal transplant? And specifically, as we talk about improving quality of life post-transplant, it sounds like that's a major win in terms of just being on one medication. I can tell you that. But what else is on the horizon in this field? So I think the, the majority of strides have been made in, in giving patients their own control of their health in terms of they become their own 
you're masters of what's going on with the intestine. And the way we've done that, and that again, that's again, you know, the, the um, pioneering work we did in, in Oxford is transplanting, you know, a piece of skin from the same donor. We transplant the skin either on the forearm and we vascularize it. We, we join the blood vessel. So it's not a split skin graft. It's different from a split skin graft. It's a whole vascular composite allograft from the same donor. And we put it onto the forearm where they can see it, or we inset it, inset it into the abdominal incision where you know, no one can see it, only they can see it. Now, what does that do? That has got some amazing immunology attached to it once you connect blood vessels. What that piece of skin does is it protects the intestine by a, a mechanism called innate immunity. That means if I'm the recipient of that skin graft and the intestine, whenever my immune temperature has gone up, guess what? I'm going to be attacking that skin first. And it'll show up as a, as a, as a rash. It's a visual canvas. I alert the doctor, send a picture, come in, get a biopsy, grade it, and treat it. If I don't treat that, within the next 10 to 15 days, I will have rejection in my intestine. So what has happened now is we've bought ourselves time, and therefore, the, there is a dynamic window into the immune system through that skin graft. And we've published, we've written a lot about it, and it's gaining popularity slowly. We're trying to implement that at the Cleveland Clinic. You know, we've gone through the IRB and, and trying to get all the regulatory uh, tick boxes to be able to make this as a, you know, as a, um, as a, a add-on procedure done at the same time. But it is a useful procedure because then you have remote patient-led immune monitoring. You don't have to come to the hospital. If your flap is good, brush your teeth, my flap is good, all, all is good. You do not have to be keeping on coming to the hospital. So that's the, you know, that quality of life changes there. You know, you, not only you're on once a, you know, once a day uh, medication, but also you've got this window here. Suddenly you are in control. You know what's going on. And that makes it very endearing for our patients. That is incredible, fantastic stuff. And so for listeners of this podcast, you know, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. So we like to end up with some quick hitters. And so to get to know you a little bit better, Neil, what's your favorite food? Thai food. What is your favorite sport? Cricket. I knew you were going to say that. I just <laughs> knew you were going to say that. What is the last non-medical book that you've read? Oh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And finally, you've been all around the world. Tell us something that you like about being here in Cleveland. Cleveland's got this fantastic, during the summer, ability. You just drive maybe less than 10, 12 minutes out, and you're in your beautiful nature. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you just love that, especially you're going out with the kids. Um, and they, they love nature. They love walking. It's just the metro parks have been a delight. That's fantastic. So give us some a final take-home message to our listeners about this intestinal transplant program. So intestinal transplant is there as a support act for patients who have type 3 intestinal failure 
we are there to be able to give them one more option to to you know what they currently have. Intestinal transplantation has gotten better and better over the years. We our success rates have gotten you know better than you know what they were perhaps ten years ago. If you think that lung transplantation is here to stay and you know is, is something that is a normal procedure that we do, intestinal transplantation has done better than that. We're closing the gap to liver transplant in terms of outcomes, and w- the amount of innovation that's come through. We've, we've created a situation where you know, patients are in control of their you know, transplant grafts. That is absolutely exhilarating stuff. And so if you or someone you know is interested in learning more about Cleveland Clinic's Transplant Center, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash transplant. That's clevelandclinic.org slash T-R-A-N-S-P-L-A-N-T. You can also call the Transplant Center at 216-444-2394. That's 216-444-2394. Finally, please remember, and you've heard me say this multiple times, in times like these, it's important for you and your family to continue to receive medical care. And rest assured, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we are absolutely taking all of the necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and protect our caregivers and patients like you. So, Anil, thanks for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Great. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.